0: Welcome back to The Bar. The Bar on Healthcare is a podcast produced by the Aon Health Solutions Group, focusing on developments in federal and state health and welfare law and their impact on employer group health plans. I'm J.D. Pirro of the Legal Consulting Group.
1: And hello everyone, I'm Carrie Willis, also with The Legal Consulting Group. If you're listening to this podcast on Aon.com, thanks for being here, but keep in mind that it might be easier for you and frankly, better for us, if you made us part of your regular feed. Just search for The Bar on Healthcare on any of the streaming services where you normally get your podcasts, from Google Play to Stitcher to Apple Podcasts, then subscribe, tell your friends, and we'd love to hear any reviews. And JD, The Bar is open.
0: Come right in. Your favorite spot awaits. We're glad you're with us. And forget what they say about April being the cruelest month. Spring has finally sprung. Baseball is returning. And we might finally, finally be back to a summer of movies and beaches. But before all that happens, we have some healthcare developments out of Washington, D.C. that employers want to know about. And one of the things employers probably want to know about is what happened this morning, April 5th as we are sitting here recording, the Biden administration has issued new regulations, proposed regulations to fix a problem that quite honestly, maybe some of you didn't realize that we had. But the problem is what's called the family glitch. And the Biden administration plans to adjust how the Treasury Department determines who is eligible for a health insurance subsidy through the Affordable Care Act. And this problem, which I said, is called the family glitch. It happens when a worker has employer-based coverage that is deemed affordable by the Treasury Department. Now, affordability means you pay less than 9.83% of your household income. But how do you determine what's affordable? And actually, the way that we like to think about it, we like to think about it with that earnest all-American family, the Brady Bunch. So when Mr. Brady goes to Mr. Phillips, his employer, and is offered affordable coverage, that affordability is based on the coverage for Mr. Brady. So if the coverage is affordable for Mr. Brady, no problem. If the coverage is not affordable for Mr. Brady, well, Mr. Brady can go to the exchange and get a subsidy. But Mr. Brady, he's a family guy. And he likes to cover not just himself, but Carol Brady and the six Brady kids. Greg, Peter, Bobby, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. I forget who the other two were. Uh, No, actually, it was Jan and Cindy. So he's going to cover them. If, however, it turns out that covering the Brady Bunch is not affordable for Mr. Brady... Mr. Brady's not entitled to a subsidy from the exchange. So not only does that mean Mr. Brady has to shell out more out of pocket for himself, but that whole Hawaii episode, you know, they're probably just going to do an episode where they're going around the block, maybe to a local ice cream store. They, they can't afford Hawaii. Terry, what happens?
1: So to bring us back to the proposed regulations that were released today. You should
0: have seen what I had planned to do on the Partridge family before <laughs> we started this.
1: So the bottom line is right now, if you are an employee and you have coverage through the employer and employee only. Coverage is affordable. You cannot get a subsidy in the exchange. That also means that if your family is eligible for coverage through your employer, but the cost of that family coverage is not affordable, but the employee-only coverage is affordable, you still can't get a subsidy in the exchange for that family coverage because, as you said, JD, affordability is based on the cost of employee-only coverage. So these proposed regulations that were released this morning do address that situation. So family coverage has to be affordable for the entire family. And if it's not, then that family would be eligible for a subsidy in the exchange. So I know we've kind of run that point to the ground, but I just wanted to make clear that's the gap we're talking about. And that's the gap that these proposed regs are designed to address. The trials
0: and tribulations of the Brady family aside, this glitch was not created by the Bush administration. It was not created by the Trump administration. This glitch, so-called glitch, was created by the Obama administration. And what I'm trying to understand here is if the Obama administration decided that employee only coverage was what had to be put into the regulations, because that's what the statute said, how does the Biden administration get around that? I mean, I would think that the Obama administration, since you know, they put the Obama in Obamacare, they would want to be able to have the broadest possible subsidy for people. How are we getting to the point where the Biden administration is looking at what the Obama administration did and said, well, that was a mistake there?
1: The preamble to these proposed regulations does go into that in a lot Of detail. And it's not so much that the Biden administration is saying that there was a mistake earlier. They're saying just that there were two different interpretations of the statute. And they go into a lot of detail around why this new interpretation that they are proposing that would allow for an increased amount of subsidies in the exchange is appropriate based on the statutory language. So again, it's not a matter of saying someone was right or wrong previously. It's just a matter of saying, hey, there's a different interpretation and we think that this is the better interpretation and here's our reasoning why. Now you could say, oh, they're right, they're wrong. Well, how is this different? But the fact that there are different interpretations of a statute is a huge body of legal jurisprudence. So that is not unusual to say there could be different interpretations of a statute.
0: I have to say, the last time the Biden administration went into court and argued, well, it's just a different interpretation of the statute, there was the rent moratorium case from last summer. There was the vaccine mandate case from a few months ago. In both instances, the Supreme Court decided that this was an executive overreach. The statute just didn't provide for that. But I guess my question is as opposed to the last two times, who's going to complain about this? I mean, in the rent moratorium case, it was obvious who the plaintiff was going to be. Certainly in the vaccine mandate case, it was obvious who the plaintiff was going to be. I'm not sure that you can really find a plaintiff here who's going to come in and complain, unless there's another entity here that we don't know about yet. Now, I should say, up front, we have not been through the regulations from the beginning. So, you know, we've only had a couple of hours to look at this. So really, it's this is our first cut at this. So, but Carrie, go ahead.
1: So that's a good question. And upon my initial review, of the proposed regulations, it doesn't look like that this impacts the employer shared responsibility mandate. So the change in the definition of affordability, because affordability is one of the requirements that an employer has to meet in terms of their own offer of coverage in order to avoid penalties under the ESR. If this change in the reading of the statute did impact the liability for employers under ESR, then they would be logical plaintiffs for a question on whether this was appropriate or not. As I said, under my initial review, and again, to beat this point to the ground, it's just come out. We haven't had a chance to spend a lot of detail, but it doesn't look like it impacts that. Now, the other issue is whether this will impact the reporting that employers have to do around the type of coverage they offer. So right now, employers have to report on the coverage that they offer to employees and whether that is affordable based on the current definition of affordability for single only coverage. If affordability is now based on the cost of coverage for dependents or other related individuals, then the question is, will that somehow change the information that employers have to report on on their forums that Get filed with the IRS early every year.
0: Is this an issue that employers are going to have to deal with immediately? I mean, what's the status of this? Does this go into effect now? Is it going to go into effect later?
1: Yeah, so as you mentioned before, these are proposed regulations only. They're not final. So there will be a notice and comment period of 60 days, and then the administration would issue final regulations after some period of time once the comment period expires. The preamble to these proposed regulations does anticipate that final regulations. Would be issued before the end of the year, and that then this would go into effect in 2023. So more to come on this um, as we dig into it and find out what, if any, impact this is going to have on employers and their group health plans.
0: Well, as you say, more to come on this, but you know, for right now, walking across the street from the Supreme Court over to Congress, uh, we had some action in the House of Representatives last week on that ever-present issue of prices of prescription drugs. And Kerry, what can you tell us about what the House of Representatives did there?
1: There's obviously, and as we've talked about before, been a lot of proposals to address the cost of prescription drugs. But particularly in the last few years, there's been a lot of emphasis on the price of insulin. So last week, the House of Representatives passed legislation that would address the cost of insulin by reducing the amount that group health plan participants have to pay out of pocket for their insulin prescriptions. The legislation, if it becomes law, would cap the amount that participants have to pay to the lesser of $35 a month or an amount equal to 25% of the plan's negotiated price. The legislation also addresses the cost of insulin under the Medicare program, but for our discussion purposes today, we're going to focus on how it impacts group health plans. In addition to limiting what the participant pays out of pocket, the legislation also prohibits. Plans plans from making the insulin coverage subject to the deductible. So you could not require someone to meet their deductible before this cap on the insulin cost would kick in. And additionally, any cost sharing that the participant pays has to apply to the deductible and to the out-of-pocket maximum. And if this passed, it would go into effect for the first plan year on or after January 1st of 2023. So that's, in a nutshell, what was included included. included in the legislation that was passed by the House.
0: As you point out, it's been passed by the House, but it's going to have to go to the Senate. And there it's going to run into the buzzsaw of the filibuster. What are the prospects for this legislation being passed out of the Senate and getting 10 Republican votes?
1: Yeah, I think that this version of the legislation will probably have a difficult time finding enough votes to pass the filibuster. But there are a couple of senators who are working on their own bipartisan legislation that would address the rising list prices for insulin. So Senator Collins of Maine and Senator Shaheen of New Hampshire are working on their own version of this legislation. And they are also working with Senator Warnock, who is a big supporter of the House passed version. So we don't know quite yet what the Senate version will look like, but we may see some other attempts to address insulin costs past the Senate. And then of course, if a different version did pass the Senate, then there would have to be a negotiation process with the House to see what any final version would look like like.
0: A conference committee, we're a long way from having any sort of House Senate conference committee at this point. In fact, I can't even remember the last time they really did that seriously. It just seems that, you know, the closer we get to an election day, the more everything freezes
1: up on the Hill. Yeah, I think that's true. So we've also had some activity in the telehealth space, which was an issue that we've been hearing a lot from employers about over the last few years. As our listeners know, the Internal Revenue Code generally does not allow a high deductible health plan to provide benefits in a year until someone has met their deductible. And as a result, an HDHP plan can't offer telehealth or other remote services to participants before they satisfy that minimum deductible. But we did have some temporary flexibility around that rule under the CARES Act. JD, can you tell us about that? And then what activity we've seen on that sense?
0: Yeah, the CARES Act and an IRS notice subsequently gave temporary relief on this issue. It allowed a high deductible health plan to offer first dollar coverage of telehealth and other remote healthcare services to a covered individual before satisfying that deductible. And that was done without jeopardizing participant eligibility to contribute to an HSA. That relief also allowed participants to have standalone telehealth coverage prior to satisfying the deductible, again, without impacting your eligibility to contribute to an HSA. Now, why did Congress do this? Well, as you recall, during the height of the COVID pandemic in 2020, emergency rooms, physicians' offices, they were undergoing tremendous strains trying to handle COVID patients as well as their usual patient load. So Congress figured if we broaden access to telehealth during the pandemic, that'll allow individuals to get access to healthcare for medical conditions, thus freeing up providers and hospitals to treat COVID patients. Well, they did that. As Kerry pointed out, they allowed this to go forward. And this temporary telehealth relief guidance, however, expired at the end of plan years beginning in 2021. Remember, high deductible health plans the old saying is people like high deductible health plans, except for the high deductible, you can't cover anything except the minimal number of services before satisfying that deductible. And telehealth is one of the things that can't be paid for generally before satisfying that deductible. So this was a temporary provision, and it expired at the end of plan years beginning in 2021. It was intended really to address the height of the pandemic. Now, the Consolidated Appropriations Act that the president signed a couple of weeks ago that revives and extends the telehealth relief provisions. Problem is, there's a catch. It starts April 1 2022 and ends on December 31 2022. So that temporary relief is not retroactive to January 1st, 2022. So Kerry, that's going to create some issues with employers who have calendar year plans. If they want to take advantage of this temporary extension, they're going to have to address that three-month gap. So if an HDHP participant did access telehealth coverage on a predeductible basis, that participant right now is ineligible to contribute to an HSA. Similarly, if you have employers with non-calendar year plans, they're going to need to monitor any potential gaps that may arise and continue into 2023. Carrie, what have we heard, if anything, from the IRS as to how employers should address this issue?
1: Yeah, they haven't issued any guidance on how this will actually be implemented in practice. So I think it's going to be a little bit of a challenge for employers. And just keep in mind, this is not required. It's something employers can do if they want. And we know that a lot of employers did take advantage of this last year. So I think for those employers who find this valuable and find this to be a good benefit for their employees, they will go ahead and implement starting on April 1. But of course, there's gonna to have to be some good communication around this to employees about why it was stopped last year and why it's being implemented again, but why it's not being implemented as of January one. So it's going to be a communication issues for employers who want to implement this starting April first.
0: Yeah, you're gonna to have to communicate when it starts uh, April first and also when it expires December thirty first. And speaking of things that expire, Carrie, the most recent public health emergency declaration is set to expire later this month, in fact on April fifteenth. Does that mean that we're officially out of the COVID pandemic as of April 15th?
1: Well, the administration hasn't announced yet whether that public health emergency declaration will be extended for another 90 days or not, but it had announced earlier in the year that it would provide 60 days advance notice if it intended to let the public health emergency expire. And since we haven't gotten any such announcement that the public health emergency will expire, my guess is that we are likely to see that for at least another 90 days. But the reason why this is important for employers is because there are a lot of plan provisions and requirements that are tied to that public health emergency declaration. So once that expires, plans won't be required to provide COVID-19 testing and vaccine services without cost sharing. The special standalone telehealth benefits for those who are not eligible for the employer plan, that won't be permitted any longer. There are some special Medicaid enrollment requirements that will no longer be in effect and other provisions, again, that are tied to this public health emergency declaration. So we're watching this closely as are other people in the industry, and we'll be putting out more information upon the expiration to inform employers exactly what provisions will and won't be affected. But one thing we always like to remind people is not to confuse the public health declaration with the presidential declaration of national health emergency, which was a, different declaration and which was the one that governed the special timing rules for COBRA, HIPAA special enrollment and claims and appeals deadlines. So this is why it's fun to be an employee benefits lawyer. You have different declarations that govern different provisions that plans may and are required to do. So the fun never ends.
0: The virus was so worldwide in its effect that it needed two emergency declarations, not one. So last call, as we mentioned at the top of today's show, we might just might be heading into a summer more normal than we've seen in the last few years. And that'll mean surf, sand, and with any luck, a return to the movie theaters. And if you're looking for a movie to get you back into that feel-good mood, we can heartily recommend CODA, a small film that ended up winning big at the Academy Awards, taking home the Oscars for Best Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Picture. It's the deeply moving tale of a working class family in Gloucester, Massachusetts, with two deaf parents, a deaf son, and a hearing daughter, played to perfection by Amelia Jones, who really should have won the Best Actress Oscar. It's easy to dismiss this as a movie of the week, but it's really a story of communication, of family commitment, of people trying their best, and is told with such delicacy and restraint that it's impossible not to enjoy it. If you can catch it on streaming, check it out. It's time well spent, because for once, the best picture of the year Actually, one best picture.
1: And that's our report for today. We'd like to thank our producer, Don Moorhead, for making us sound better than we deserve. And from all of us here at Aon, I'm Carrie Willis.
0: And I'm JD Pirro.
1: Thanking you for your time this time, and until next time, the bar is closed.